Good morning, Saints. It's good to see you all and to really hear you sing this morning. Um, For those of you guys who have been with us for a little bit, we're we're going to uh, continue with Luke. Uh, We finished the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're about a year and a half, and then now we're going to go in and uh, continue with him in the book of Acts. We're going to do about six weeks in the book, uh, just sort of doing some spot checking here and there, continuing uh, to see how the Holy Spirit establishes the church through the disciples and the, the apostles. And so as you're turning to Acts 3, uh, many of you guys might have heard the phrase that he got more than he bargained for. So if there's a TikTok video or a YouTube short that has that as a caption, I might watch about five seconds of it. You know, that's the, the attention span of us on social media. But uh, there's all kinds of funny things that you could find there. There's one guy who was a Florida man, which is also always a good beginning caption. A Florida man was trying to get a golf ball out of a pond. But the local alligator made it clear to everyone that anything that goes in there belongs to him. So the man reached down to get his golf ball, and he got more than he bargained for, if you know what I mean. There's a guy in uh, Blackpool, England. He, he was on, a, on an amusement park ride, and the individual cars were supposed to spin at very specific times during the ride, but his particular chair spun the whole entire time. That dude got more than he bargained for. And there was a bear in New Milford, Connecticut, uh, and he got into a pig pen because he wanted to make these little chubby pigs a snack. And those pigs, they were not having it. They ganged up on this bear, backed him into a corner, and the bear had to jump out because he felt threatened by two little pigs. We can say that bear got more than he was bargaining for. And so just like those two dudes and this bear, in this story today, a man who was asking for some spare change, he too got more than he bargained for. And so what we're going to do is examine this story together today. And so as we find ourselves in Acts 3, we're in a new phase in redemptive history, a new phase in the way that God is moving us through from creation to restoration. In Acts 2, it says that we are witnesses, or uh, in Acts 2, we are witnesses of Pentecost. That's in the the chapter before this. Uh, When the Holy Spirit was given to those who placed their faith in Jesus. And in fact, Acts 1.8 in the chapter before that records Jesus telling his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and, he, and they will, quote, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So each time in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Acts, when the uh, gospel jumps one of these geographic or ethnic boundaries, it's punctuated by the miracle of speaking in tongues. So Acts, you know, Acts 1-8 kind of serves as, a, as an outline for the book of Acts. And so this was to demonstrate the fact that the gospel and the Holy Spirit were not just for Jewish folks, but they were for non-Jewish folks too. And so this is why God emphasized this, because uh, Jesus came through a specific family, and as we'll see, it's the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he brought salvation for everybody. And so because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, there's no need for us to remain in Jerusalem as if Jerusalem is the headquarters of Christianity. So what happens is that God's people, as we know, are the very temple of God. 
and we carry the Holy Spirit with us wherever we go. And so this is why there's a debate sometimes about the book of Acts and what the full name of it is, if it's the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is so prominent. And so today's text features John and Peter, and they're still in Jerusalem just after Jesus ascended, and the gospel was spilling out into the sea. So let's go ahead and jump into the first two verses that set the context for us. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those who were entering the temple. And so these verses are helping us set the scene. Peter and John are entering the temple at the hour of prayer, which is about 3 p.m. based upon how Jewish folks kept time. And following the pattern of Jesus, Peter and John, they go to the temple and they're telling everybody the good news of the Messiah. And so the people in the temple, they were doing, they had all these rituals and means of helping them wait in anticipation for the Messiah. And you have Peter and John going in there to tell them, hey, the Messiah that you're waiting for, he's come. The one who died and rose from the dead, that was him. That gets me excited couple of you guys in here that might work for. So uh, on their way to this temple, they encountered a man who was crippled from birth. And so this was a fairly uh, strategic place for the man to lay. It was a high traffic area, and perhaps worshipers might be a little bit more generous, uh, perhaps because, you know, they know that uh, to, to love God is to love your neighbor as well. It might be that some of these worshipers wanted to impress fellow worshipers or Others may, might think that God is more likely to be uh, generous in answering their prayers if they're generous to others. But the point is this, is that this man, he was regularly here at this gate. And we'll see that's why, why that's significant in just a little bit. And so the text also gives us the, the, uh, the, the information that he was in front of the beautiful gate. So certainly this gives us a place, uh, a, a means of understanding where he was uh, around the temple. He was on the eastern side, just outside of the court of women, just outside of the court of the Gentiles. But the significant point here was this, is the contrast between the beauty of the gates and the brokenness of the man laid before it. And so Jewish historian Josephus, he described the gate as exceedingly beautiful, more beautiful than other gates. It was covered in Corinthian brass. So I don't know what Corinthian brass looks like, but Josephus liked it. And he even said it was more beautiful than other gates uh, that, was, that were clothed in silver and in gold. So the point is, the contrast was stark. And so this, this 40-year-old man, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 22, he never walked. He never had, he had atrophied legs and ankles. He never had the opportunity to climb a tree with friends. He never had a foot race with his buddies. He never took a summer swim in a lake. So here he sits, a reminder of how brokenness in, of, the, of sin impacts our bodies right in front of this beautiful gate. And so as we look at these two verses, I'm reminded of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. As you remember, there was a man who was beaten, and he lay on the side of the road, and there's two men who walked by first before the Samaritan, and it was a, a, um, a, a priest and a Levite. And several biblical commentators suggest that these men might have been traveling to fulfill some of their religious duties. And so if they encountered a dead body along the way, it would make them ceremonially unclean, and they can't go into the temple and fulfill their religious duties. 
Do you guys see the irony in that? Can't, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that serving someone in need is not missing out on worship. That is worship. You know, uh, James 1.27, it says, this is true religion to help others and to show compassion. May we not become so busy with churchy things, with Christian stuff, that we forget that the mission of God spills out into the city where there's all kinds of need. And, so, and let's be honest, if you're coming to an Imago Day worship service and you stop and help somebody and you're 15 minutes late, you're, you're still going to beat about a third of you guys anyway, because <laughs> we're always late. So join the rest of us. So let's go ahead to verses 3 to 7 and see what happens here in this encounter. Verse 3 says, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the, hand, or by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And so the man noticed Peter and John walking up to the temple, and he did what he was accustomed to doing. He asked for alms, which is a, a charitable gift. But put yourself in the man's shoes. Decade after decade of begging. You can only imagine the pity, the pitiful looks he got, the looks of shame that this man received. And so he inquired about Peter and John's generosity with his head down, without making eye contact. And Peter could have had some sort of mechanical gesture of charity, but he dignified the man by looking at him in the eye. He insisted by looking at him, saying, you are not invisible. Look at us, Peter said. And so the man looked. Peter offered him some sort of an apology. He says, I have no silver and gold, and I can only imagine that guy's head just sort of sagging in disappointment. But as you and I know, that Peter wasn't done. When the man, uh, in verse 6, uh, he said, I do not have, uh, or, yeah, he says, uh, after he says, I, I do not have silver and gold, he says, but what I do have, I give you. Meaning that this is the best of what he has. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so about three seconds ago, this is a very normal day. This guy, he was carried to the temple, put down. He was asking for donations, alms, gifts from people who were going in, which is his way of making money. And so, uh, it, it, you know, he, he might have gotten a couple coins here and there. And then he encountered this guy who was broke. He didn't have any money, but then he said, rise up and walk. And I can only imagine that the guy who was laying there thought, this dude must be crazy, until he started feeling something in his feet. He started feeling something in his ankles. It was strength. And verse 7 says that he got up immediately. And notice that Peter was very specific to say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He made it clear that he wasn't doing some kind of hocus-pocus. He wasn't doing this by some sort of demonic power, but by the power of Jesus Christ himself. There's a, a detail in verse 7 I think it's important for us not to miss. The, after the apostle said, rise up and walk, he helped the man to stand. So Peter knew that the man was healed, 
He could stand up on his own because the miracle was done, but he still helped him. If you're counting, this is the second time that he humanized this man. He looked him in the eye, and he took him by the hand. And so Peter's helping hand was not essential for him to rise up and walk, but it allowed him to see Peter's compassion, and therefore the compassion of God. So God's people were the very hands and feet of God, and we have to extend them to those who are in need. So we can say here that it was, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. So these verses, they should encourage us today. But many of you are thinking, man, I can't do anything like that. I can't heal anybody. I can't start a Bible study at my job. I can't share the gospel with that family member that's hard to share the gospel with. I can't proclaim God's wonderful design to anybody who is in need and who's lost. Well, you're right. You can't do anything in your own power. And that's why it's so wonderful. In our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And I would even dare say that the contrast between the weakness of the vessel and the strength of the power of Christ is exactly what is going to draw people in to say, these guys are fishermen. It's obvious that they've been with Jesus. Who are the people in this room? Nobodies. But we're a bunch of people who have been with Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we can say, the Lord can save you. Take this out into the world. The only way that we can do anything is through the power of Jesus. And so God's people are never the source of God's working, but we're often the means through which God's work is accomplished. And so they responded in verses 8 to 10 with wonder and amazement, worship and amazement. And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened or what had happened to him. And so the word in leaping in verse 8 is very intentional. Uh, Luke is trying to point us back to the 35th chapter of Isaiah to a prophecy of when, the time when Jesus would come. Isaiah 35 verse 6 it says, Then... Uh, when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mutes will sing for joy. So he's trying to say, yeah, this time that uh, Isaiah was talking about to these folks who love the Old Testament, who lean into the prophets and say, hey, this time is now. The leaping has begun, and we're seeing it right in front of us. It is already underway, and one day in the kingdom, we will see it to its full. And so when the healing takes place now, it's simply a foretaste of what's to come. Can you imagine a place where we'll no longer have to wrestle with our physical ailments? I don't know how many surgeries we've had in our body of late, but we've been praying for you. We love you guys, but there's a time when we won't have to deal with this stuff any longer. You'll no longer have to battle the trauma of your past. You'll be free from it. Because of the name of Jesus Christ, you'll be free of that one day. You won't have to battle just to get out of bed and start your day in the morning. The relational baggage that you carry will be no more. And we praise God today because that work has begun in Jesus. So today's passage, it does beg some important questions about healing today. 
And so does God still heal like, like this? Is God still doing this kind of work? And the simple answer is yes. So God works through ordinary means of healing that he established. And, you know, doctors and things like that can, can track this. And they're, they're a part of that process and what have you. But I also believe that God works uh, miraculously as well. We've seen times when, when physicians are dumbfounded about what has transpired. They're like, I don't know. But we're like, we know. And the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is what we're saying. God can still do that. So the second question is, should we ask for healing today? And so until the kingdom comes, <laughs> yeah, I see you stealing my thunder out of the mouths of babes. So should we ask for healing today? <laughs> until the kingdom comes, we can ask God in confidence for healing knowing that he is powerful enough to answer our prayers now, but knowing he's not obligated to answer them in this moment. However, by his grace, God is able to give us a sneak peek into the kingdom uh, sometimes and grant healing before the kingdom arrives. You guys see how that works? So, but now for the believer, when a Christian asks for a miracle, we're asking for something that's already ours in Christ. It's just a matter if we get it now or if we get it later. The healing is already ours for those who are in Jesus. And, and I, I love it when it says, the, the scripture says, this life is but a vapor. So if you have to wait for six days, or six weeks, or six months, or six years, or even six decades, brothers and sisters, your healing is coming. Hold on just a little longer. Continue to hold on. He's already given us evidence that he is, it's happening the lame will leap like a deer. In this text, we're seeing it. Hold on. He's promised us, and his promises are good and true. So this also brings up another question, maybe a tension in the Christian life that some people have felt. I'm often asked if uh, it's more important to meet someone's spiritual or physical need, as if these two are conflicting. And I reassure them that Jesus did both, and the disciples now are doing both. And so, so often there's a, so a follow-up question. Well, if we only have time, we have to choose between doing one or the other. Which one do we pick? And I say, Jesus did both. <laughs> but throughout Jesus' ministry, he made it very clear that, that people's biggest problems were not government oppression under Rome, not poverty, not homelessness, and the list goes on. But Jesus always insisted that those problems are a symptom of a larger issue and that was sin. And so it's sin that causes poverty. It's sin that causes hunger and government oppression and estrangement from God. And Jesus did something about all of it. The good news of Jesus restores our relationship to God. It restores us to other people. It lets us understand who we are as image bearers and also to the world around us. It restores us. And so eternity will commence when sin and Satan have met their end and love, compassion, peace, and justice will reign over this entire earth. Bible commentators continually underscore the fact that Peter's actions mirrored that of Jesus. And we follow in Peter's footsteps as we mirror Jesus, doing all that we can to meet physical and spiritual needs as a sign of the coming kingdom. And so now we get to this point in the passage where we said that this man, he didn't just go home, he worshiped. 
This is instructive for us. We have to be quick to praise God when we see his hand at work. So I know that we're a fairly educated congregation, and we think that a shout might be behind us or beneath us. It's not. We have to praise God in the sanctuary of his people. We have to praise God going to the people that know us by the sin that used to characterize our lives and say, by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that thing no longer has me captive. The Lord Jesus does. So we have to praise him for that sometime. And I think that we are too dignified for our own selves sometimes. And so we got to get out there and be uh, a, little, a little rough around the edges with our worship sometime. And so, uh, you know, this is why we need some, some, some newly saved saints around the saved saints, the, the, the seasoned saints, because they be worshiping wild. And some of us, we just too refined. Well, praise the Lord. It's like, no. And they just don't know, they don't know any better. And so this is, this is I'm, I'm having a lot of fun because it's true. Y'all know this. You, you get some, somebody who was in it last week, but they're in here this week, they'll tell you all about it. And we can't lose that. Let them teach us that. We can learn from the, those whom the Spirit has filled. And so we need to be more thrilled with what God is doing in our lives. We need to be more thrilled with what God is doing in our midst, both the big things and the little things. And so part of our homework is this week is to actively look around for things we can be filled with wonder and amazement about. What has God done around you right now, this week, that we should be filled with awe and amazement about. And I guarantee you, as you look for those things, it'll change your perspective on your week. I, I understand the diagnoses. I understand the challenges. We, we, we often uh, you know, pray for you guys in these things, but there are still ways we can see the hand of God at work, and we have to acknowledge those and praise Him for it. Okay, let's look to verses uh, 11 to 16, where we see how Peter explained just what happened. So while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly uh, astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Verse 13, uh, the, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be uh, granted to you. And you kill the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And this name, or and, and, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the, and the faith that, that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect uh, he, uh, health in the presence of you all. That verse 16 is a beast, y'all, to read that. But anyway. We see, I'm going to write a letter to, to the ESV translators. And so uh, Peter is a great example of word and deed faith. He wasn't going to let a good miracle slip away and not proclaim Jesus. And so let's go ahead and dig into his, his speech a little bit. The pattern that we see here is reminiscent of just what happened in Acts chapter 2. There was an unusual event that took place in chapter 2. It was the tongue, uh, fi tongues of fire and speaking in tongues. Uh, and then in chapter 3, it was the man who was lame who was healed. And then we see the people who were astonished in both chapters. And now we see Peter explaining what just had happened. 
And so from the beginning, it's important to notice just how Christ-centered Peter's message was. He insisted that their astonishment shouldn't be misplaced. This miracle was not about Peter or John. This miracle was not supposed to make them marvel at the lame man who is now walking, but instead, Peter directed them towards Jesus. And so while Peter and John may have been the only ones there to witness the risen Lord, to see his nail-pierced hands, to witness him walking through walls, uh, these people now, they have to wrestle with what they have seen. They know the man who was sitting at the gate, beautiful, for decades. And now he has risen and he is walking. So now they have to deal with that because by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is walking. And so the lame man that everyone knew was healed by the power of Jesus. And so it's uncanny as well how, how well Peter knows his audience. First he addresses them as, in verse 12, as men of Israel, those who are Jewish by birth. And then Peter listed the patriarchs in familial terms. The, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's trying to put himself in that mix. And so Peter got this from this line of the patriarchs from Exodus chapter 3, and he slightly altered it a little bit to let them know that Peter and John identified themselves with the patriarchs, and also that God's covenant promise to the patriarchs to send the promised one was fulfilled in Jesus. And so he's doubling down on the connection between the forefathers, Jesus, and the miracle. So he's saying, if you're with the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you're with Jesus because you've seen what's happened today. You can't have one without the other. And so this is, this is he's trying to proclaim the good news to him. This is textbook evangelism. Peter is working hard to realign their current understanding of truth to the fact that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And that's what we're all called to do. We're called to proclaim the fact that Jesus is Savior and Lord, uh, helping people eliminate the, their, their, their strongholds that are keeping them away from affirming that message of Christ is Lord. And so let's look at verses 13 to 15 when Peter punches him in the mouth. So this is how I thought about it the whole week when I was thinking about this. So anyway, if you forgot, Jesus, uh, verse 15, 15, uh, 13, uh, partway through, Jesus whom he delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. This definitely wasn't seeker-sensitive for Peter. He, he missed out on the lesson from Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But in, in all seriousness, every time I read this, this part of this text, I just grimaced, and I was like, Peter, ease up, bro. Like, be easy. <laughs> but the reason why he was doing this is because he was underscoring the fact that the author of life was killed in their midst. So the, some Bible commentators say that Peter was insistent upon this because some of the very people who were there might have been some of the ones who were crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We're not that far from that moment, and we're in the same place. And so the purpose of Peter's blunt language was to rattle them to the point of repentance. He tried to drive home the fact that they killed the promised one. 
the one that the nation of Israel was awaiting for for generations. He's trying to let them know that Jesus is the seed of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. He's trying to let them know that Jesus is the ruler of the tribe of Judah in Genesis uh, 49. He's trying to say that Jesus is the son who establishes the house of David forever in 2 Samuel 7. He's trying to say that Jesus is the one born of a virgin that they read about in Isaiah 7. He's trying to insist that Jesus is the one whose death is foretold in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Jesus is the man. He's the long-awaited one. He's the one who our, our, our promises have been fulfilled. And the worshipers needed to understand this. So Peter stated it in the strongest language possible. But even Peter comes at him pretty hard. But he gives him the benefit of the doubt in verse 17, which is beyond our text. But he says this, I know that you have acted in ignorance, but now you know. The long-awaited Messiah has finally come, and we crucified him on a tree between two criminals. So although Peter stressed their involvement in Jesus' death, by the end of the speech, in verses 25 and 26, you guys can look ahead there if you want to, he emphasized the fact that even they too have an opportunity to, be, to repent and be blessed. Even the ones who might have been shouting, crucify him, have the opportunity to repent and be blessed. Don't you? Don't you think the things that you have done, can, God can give you grace for? Even for the person who's not a Christian, who thinks that your deeds can keep you so far away from God that his love won't extend to you, it does. For the Christian who wrestles with the fact that, am I saved because I just keep doing what I don't want to do and don't want to do what I want to do, that's like, you're, just like, you're just like Paul. The grace of God is extended to you. Repent and be blessed. And we, we conclude our text today with verse 16, when Peter, uh, he makes two basic points. And the first one is that by, by faith in the resurrected Jesus, this man was healed. And the second one is that you have witnessed the power of the resurrected Jesus to heal this man. Now you have a decision to make. Are you going to let this Jesus heal you too? Are you going to receive the grace that this Jesus can afford you? You've seen, you've heard of him rising from the dead. You've seen him heal this man. You know this isn't just some random stuff. This is the, the prophecies of Isaiah coming true. Will you receive him? So there's several calls to action from this text. And the first one really continues on where verse 16 left off. And the question for you is, will you trust in Christ today? We've received uh, you know, we, we've seen in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four witnesses to the resurrected Lord. We have all sorts of historical evidence to back this up, that a man died and rose from the dead. Are you going to receive him? But some of you guys might still say, but I'm, I'm, I have no right to come to Jesus. You don't know what I've done. But I think this is where the picture of the lame man is an example to us of our natural inability to save ourselves. We don't come to Jesus clean and sterilized. He's the one who makes us clean. And some of us are so broken that just like this man, we have to be carried to Jesus. And that's okay. Because it's not our strength that makes us worthy of heaven. It's his strength. By his stripes we're healed. And I love it, uh, John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. Jesus has got you. 
Let them, let them receive the salvation that's being extended to you by our Savior today. There's nothing that you've done that will keep you from reaching out. He is there waiting. So the next action step called action is to praise. So like the man we see in verses 8 and 9, he was free to praise. He was, he was delivered. He was healed. And so he was praising the Lord. We need to do this a little more. As we are talking to each other, as we're at our dinner tables, praising God for what he's done, as we're here worshiping corporately, I want to see some folks in the aisles <laughs> acting wild for Jesus. Over there at the Mago Day Church, they say the creeds and they dance? <laughs> what kind of church is this? <laughs> we're Christians is what we are. We know the Messiah who died and rose. The Jesus of Nazareth that the text is proclaiming today has given a reason to praise today. And if you can't think of anything right now, you better go home and do some homework because the Lord has delivered you from your sins. He rose so you can have life and have it abundantly, and he continues to sustain you. The gospel is not just the diving board, but it's the pool we jump into. So the grace of God is all in and through our life, and we have to praise him for that. Number three, he gives us boldness. And so we have to remember that this is the same Peter who denied three, uh, Jesus three times. And one of them was in front of a little bitty girl. And so now you have this Peter. Uh, nothing against girls, but, you know, she was little. And the Bible says she was a girl. So, uh, but this is Peter now proclaiming. <laughs> See, y'all going to get me in trouble over here. <laughs> uh, Peter was proclaiming the, the, the good news of Jesus in Jerusalem, in the holy city. He was proclaiming the good news of Jesus amongst people who they know he, he knew would be antagonistic towards that sort of proclamation. Amongst the people that were saying, crucify him. But he was seeing the resurrection, full of the Spirit. He couldn't help but talk about what he had seen and heard. And we too ought to be filled with the same kind of boldness. We have the same Holy Spirit. That's what the book, that's what Acts chapter 2 is all about. We are continuing the work of Jesus. We are filled with the Spirit, and we should try to act like it sometimes. And I say this to myself. I discount so often the fact that it is not me that brings anybody into the kingdom. But it's the foolishness of the gospel. All we have to do is be faithful to proclaim it. Number four, we have to have compassion. This, this uh, passage demonstrates that God's people, those filled by the Holy Spirit, are compassionate proclaimers of the gospel. And going the extra mile to demonstrate the love in the, in the, uh, of Christ in tangible ways to the glory of our Lord. So, just like we see Peter, even going the extra mile of helping the man up, even though he was, he was healed, we have to have that kind of compassion. Number five, anticipation. So, as we anticipate healing and deliverance from all of our ailments, full deliverance from all of our vices and our pain, we know that the healing is already ours in Jesus. And so we look forward to the deliverance that God has already granted us, if it's now or even if it's later. And so I'm grateful that we have a reason for hope today, aren't you? I'm glad that we have a, a Lord who is still speaking to us through his word and has a, a word that's relevant to us because the same spirit that was in Peter and Paul and John <laughs> is in us. And so I say with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we're just grateful 
for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for how you sent Christ to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, which is to live a righteous life that's worthy of your presence. We thank you that if we ask him, his life will be transferred onto our account and we can live with you forever. And God, we thank you that because of this message, you've given us boldness by your Spirit's help to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And God, I I do pray that because of all this, we'd be filled with awe and wonder and amazement about the things that you have done and even the things that you've done through us that make no sense outside of the power of God in us. I pray that we'd also be a people of compassion. Those who would would be looked upon by those outside of our walls and they'd say, these people are loving people. They love the broken and the least. They love those who can give them nothing in return. I pray that we'd be a people of compassion. And so, Father, as we wait with patience and gladness at your return, I pray that you would just give us the ability to, to hang on and keep singing and keep dancing. Because one day, we all, if we get healed now or later, we'll leap like a deer. We all will be able to just worship you without any hesitation or reservation, God. I pray that you would hold us, keep us, dear Lord, secure in your arms until that day. We pray all this in your name. Amen.